James chapter 2, this is our second sermon on verses 1 through 13, then we'll move on. I think we're going to take two weeks, two weeks off, and then we'll get back into James, but um, James 2, 1 through 13, hear the word of God. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Yes, Lord, we agree with your word. It is our desire to uh, live it out. And I pray as we continue to worship and uh, submitting to that which your word has to say, that you would anoint my lips, enable me, Father, to preach your word faithfully and enable us to be hearers and doers of your word. You are the one who works in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And, Father, we delight and rest ourselves in that. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> And I'm assuming that you guys have the background because there's no way we were going to be able to get through all the material last week. So I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, we can pride ourselves in, you know, not being racially prejudiced and maybe uh, not being class conscious. But we saw last week that there's all kinds of subtle ways in which we can show prejudice. And sometimes it's not even so subtle. Um, I've seen times where somebody is accusing another individual of doing something they've just finished doing five minutes ago. Actually, sometimes right while they're talking, <laughs> you know, yelling at somebody for yelling. Or the kid saying, he was opening his eyes during prayer. And the parent says, well, how did you know? You know, that type of a thing. Many times it's not subtle, though we don't recognize it. We're blind to our own faults many times. And I read a cartoon that I thought, you know, conveys this human nature so well it's a woman who's being congratulated um, because her two children have just gotten married. And the neighbor says, well, what kind of boy did your daughter marry? Oh, he's wonderful, says the mother. He makes her sleep late, wants her to go to the beauty parlor every day, won't let her cook, insists upon taking her out to dinner every night. Oh, that's nice, said the neighbor. And your son, what kind of girl did he marry? Mother sighs. Oh, I'm not so happy there. She's lazy sleeps late every morning, spends all her time at the beauty parlor, won't cook, and makes them take all their meals out. <laughs> okay, both girls doing exactly the same thing, but one seen in a positive light and the other in a negative light. Now, maybe a little bit of an extreme, but we do tend to be exactly like that. We look at people and we'll focus on their faults and be totally oblivious to all of the neat things that these people are doing just because we're angry at them, we're upset with them. And um, there's many different ways in which, uh, in, in which um, 
uh, prejudice camouflages itself, and I'm not going to go over all of the prejudices that I stomped on last week, but I want to look at what are the remedies for prejudice. This is Roman numeral three, and the first thing that James touches on is our motives. Now, let me read from the New American Standard Bible here on verse four. It says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves, and here's the key phrase, and become judges with evil motives? Another version has it, do you not make improper distinctions among yourselves and prove to be critics with evil motives? Another version, you are guided by wrong motives. And you know, many times we don't even understand what our motives are that are driving us to be prejudiced in this way, but our motives affect the way we think and they affect our actions. James indicates that any time that there is prejudice, there are going to be evil motives that are going to be present. Now, there are three dangers I want to look at with respect to these motives. And the first one is um, that we need to be very careful that we do not misjudge the motives of other people. We do not read other people's hearts. The second is that we have a danger of failing to examine our own motives. What are, what are our motives when I'm dealing with this other person? And the third is that we cave into peer pressure when other people question our motives, even though our motives may be perfectly clear. A lot of prejudice is the result of peer pressure, caving into it. Okay, so those are the three. And um, verse 8 rules out, first of all, judging other people's motives. It's a call to have agape love. And he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I want you to turn there. And just as a side note, I want to... Um, point out that James, here's another one of those things of James's hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the methodology of interpretation, the science of interpretation. And a lot of people come up with a system totally independent of the scripture, and then they say, here's how you have to interpret the scripture. There's enough times that Old Testament prophets interpreted other prophets. There's enough times that New Testament apostles and Jesus interpret the Old Testament. You can develop an entire system of hermeneutics. You don't need to go outside of the scriptures. You can find it right there. And we're not going to get into all that, but the thing I want you to notice is that James, when he proof text, does not quote the passage out of context. Uh, one of the primary rules of interpretation is that context is king. He takes it uh, out of the context of, of prejudice. So Leviticus 19 and verse 18 is what he's quoting. But I want to start at verse 9, and I want you to just, I'm not going to read it. I want you to skim read as I summarize some of these different things so that you can uh, see the context that is ready. Okay, verses 9 through 10 deal with gleaning laws and command Israelites to allow the poor to glean. And so James 2 is dealing with how we treat the poor. Leviticus 19 is dealing with that as well. Then Leviticus deals with stealing and falsehood in, in verses 11 through 12. We saw last week, when we pin labels on people, one, one of the forms of discrimination, uh, it is a form of falsehood, but it definitely robs people of their dignity, robs them of opportunity. <clears throat> and uh, so, and theft, obviously, is a, uh, is a form of prejudice. Verse 13 tells us we need to deal fairly with employees. Uh, discrimination, very common in the workplace. Verse 14, condemns those who make fun of the, uh, of the deaf or who puts stumbling blocks in front of the blind, he says, how you deal, God is very, very concerned about how you deal with those who are, what's it called, disabled, okay? Uh, another form of, of discrimination, handicapped. Verse 15 deals with discrimination in the courts. And so you can see James is drawing his, his verse out of a context 
that deals with discrimination. Verse 16, a gossip, which is a form of prejudice, makes distinctions in the body. Uh, we'll come back to verse 17 in a moment, but look at verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but here comes a contrast to this long list of prejudices, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, why is love such a, a powerful antidote to prejudice? Well, it's because one of the reasons, there's a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because love does not judge the motives of other people. In 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul defines agape love, which is the kind of love that James talks about, he says that love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, it's not willing to read the heart. It deals objectively with actions, with words, with things that are on the outside. It doesn't try to, uh, to read uh, the heart. Uh, now, we're not talking here about uh, naivete because there are some people, you know, say, okay, love believes all things, but the actions show quite the opposite. No, love is quite willing to take on actions and even bring rebuke, and we're going to be seeing that in a moment in this passage in Leviticus. Uh, love acts in one of two ways when there is outward sin that is expressed. First way is that love covers a multitude of sins with the emphasis being on the multitude, okay? And the second way is that love rebukes sin. One of those two ways love is going to act. Now, why does love cover over a multitude of sins? It's because we're not instantly sanctified overnight, you know, when we're converted. There's a long process of time where we are, the Lord helps us to tackle. You know, we deal with these sins and get victory and the Lord gives us some more and, and the Lord's patient with us and we need to be patient with each other as well. But there comes a time when, when the things that happen in people's lives are so destructive to them or to their family or to the church or to the testimony that love comes along and says, hey, we can't be patient on this one. We got to deal with this. And so you go in, you lovingly say, hey, I, this is something I've struggled with perhaps. Or if it's not, you just say, look, I love you too much to let you go on destroying your family. And uh, you come and you bring uh, your rebuke. And that second principle can be seen in Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter uh, 18. And sometimes it's hard to know what's the balance. You know, love covering a multitude of sins, love confronting sin. Well, if you, if you make the emphasis, the multitude, you know, <laughs> that you can put up with, the griefs of other people, and that love rebukes some, uh, you'll probably be fitting somewhere in there close. But Leviticus 19, verse 17, deals with the confrontation of sin. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your brother and not bear sin because of him. Now, if, you're, if there's something that's causing you to just hate your brother, why does he say you just sh shouldn't keep it to yourself? Well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, you should not be overcome by evil. You need to be doing something. And if you're not able to conquer this, you know, by your actions of love and it's something that's, that's breaking the barrier, you have to deal with it. Love is going to not allow those, those relationships to be broken. Uh, the, the second, uh, the second uh, reason that you cannot ignore it <clears throat> is that uh, this person may be destroying his life and if you do not rebuke him, or he may be destroying other relationships, you're not doing the loving thing. The third reason is you may have totally misunderstood this person. I've seen this happen more than once, where an individual is bent out of shape and upset with some individual, goes and rebukes them and finds out it wasn't him after all. 
And if he hadn't gone to confront that individual, it would have been lingering in his mind, this upset with this individual who had been totally fault. And so coming and confronting this individual allows the, the, the misinformation to come to the surface and things to be clarified. And so there really is a place of love for, for rebuke. Now, I want to go back to James chapter 2 with that in mind and uh, look at verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, in other words, when you are giving this preferential treatment to the rich person when he's coming into your assembly, you're giving him a special seat. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. It's okay what you're doing. Okay? Um, <clears throat> One commentator explained the Greek this way. In a sense, the word really is the key. In spite of all outward circumstances, James says, I realize your concern for the rich may be genuine. Your actions toward him may well be an instance of fulfilling the royal preeminent law of love. If so, your outward actions toward the unbelieving rich man are good. You do well. And our other commentators point out the same thing. Let me read you one more from another commentary. Indeed, James implies that identical actions may be taken from very different, even opposite motives. It is conceivably possible that in order to fulfill the royal law of love, because your motive is love, you might show special concern to a rich man, escorting him to a good seat, just as at another time you might do the same for a poor man. In other words, your obvious concern for him may not flow from motives of advantage at all, but let us say from a desire for him to hear the gospel and be saved. If you knew the rich man was hard of hearing, this would be a thoughtful act on your part. But to others who did not know that fact, it might look like an act of favoritism. This would be a natural assumption because such things are usually done out of evil motives. But no one has the right to assume everything about another's motives. James' important point then is that all that glitters is not pyrite. There is some gold in the world after all. And that's the point of uh, verse 8, that we should not now, because we're worried about being discriminatory, you know, and of being prejudiced, we should not concentrate so much of our attention on the poor that we begin to be prejudiced to the rich. You see what he's saying there? He is even-handed. He says, uh, the true love is going to avoid all forms of prejudice and not worry what other people are going to say about us. And I have seen this happen. I've seen people who have been subject of racism, and they've been hurt by that. And in the process, they begin to be racist in their attitudes to other people. For example, I had one person, he'd never even seen me. And he was calling me a racist and, and, and uh, chewing me out. And I was saying, you don't even know who I am. How can you know that I'm a racist? Well, you're white. And I said, well, that's a racist statement because you are judging my behavior based on my skin color, not my sin. Okay, so... Again, it's very easy for people who truly have been the subject of racism to begin to be racist and maybe unwittingly be racist against other people. Another example uh, that um, uh, we might have is a, a person might have seen so much, um, you know, uh, graft and problems and, you know, in, in, in uh, politics and in the military that he assumes that any patriotic act is just for self-promotion. Ah, oh, yeah, he's just doing it so he can get promoted in his job or whatever. And it's very easy to, to judge the motives of other people. We fall into the trap of prejudice that we're seeking to avoid. Uh, one of my co-workers up in a hospital up in Canada was a Chinese man uh, who was discussing the terrible racism of the 
uh, Germans under, under Hitler. And when he discovered I was a German, he came up to me. He was, he was livid. He was very angry, just trembling almost when he was saying to me, you Jew killer, you Jew killer. He kept repeating that. And I said, I wasn't even there in Germany. How am I a Jew killer, you know? And we started talking about that. But here was a case of a person who hated the racism of Hitler, but in the process became racist against all Germans. Now, that's an extreme example, but again, it's just to illustrate it can so easily happen uh, in our lives. And so here, James is saying that agape love as the fruit of the Spirit avoids all prejudice because it is action-oriented. It's either going to cover a multitude of sins with a servant's heart or it's going to confront sin with a servant's heart, but it will refuse to read another person's heart. Okay? It only deals with outward actions. Now, if you're talking to your children and um, uh, you've finally gotten them to obey, but they're rolling their eyes and their, you know, facial gestures, that's not reading the heart to say, no, nope, come back here, you got to do this all over again, <laughs> you know. Uh, we're talking about outwardly everything looks okay, but you're still suspicious and you're reading the heart. No, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things until the outward actions uh, prove otherwise. And, 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 and by the way, that Chinese guy had been hurt in the past by Germans who were racist, and he just was taking it out on, you know, on all Germans. And I've talked to people who have been beat up as children by Roman Catholics in Omaha, and uh, their attitude toward all Roman Catholics comes out of the experience that they had as children with maybe a few bullies that had, that had hurt them. Uh, some won't give a person the time of day because of misinformation or fear or pride. Okay. Uh, so we need to make sure, first of all, that we don't judge other people's motives. We need to evaluate our own motives. What is it that's driving me? Why is it that I'm prejudiced? Is it pride? That I need to crucify my pride? Is it um, peer pressure? Maybe fear of man? Then I need to learn the fear of God to replace the fear of man. Uh, is it insecurities? Uh, there's many different things. You need to examine, why is it that I keep making these prejudiced statements and evaluate the motives and go after those? And we're not going to go into detail on how to deal with motives. We can maybe do that at another time. Then finally, going back to verse 8, we need to do good regardless of what other people think of us. If you gave that rich person his preferential seat out of good motives, he's hard of hearing. He needs to sit at the front and other people are, are accusing you of prejudice. Make sure you don't cave in to the peer pressure of other people's misinformation. Uh, sociologists have pointed out that a lot of prejudice is due to caving in to peer pressure. And I think you don't need a sociologist to figure that out. You can see it probably all, all around you. But if you understand your motives, you've made huge strides in overcoming prejudice. Okay, second step is that we need to deal with our thinking. We need to uh, readjust our worldview, and he gives several steps in which we can do that. In verse 5, James wants us to think about how God would treat the person that we are prejudiced against. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, some people jump to conclusions, and they say that, God has uh, rejected the rich as being rich, not being rich in faith. That's not what he's saying. He's dealing with the poor here. In fact, later on in the book, he deals with Abraham, who was an enormously wealthy person, and yet he says he was rich in faith. 
what James is saying is that the poor can be rich in faith as well. See, there was a common misunderstanding amongst Jews in the first century that if you were poor, then it was obviously God's judgment upon you. It, you know, it must be sin in your life. And so they would treat them uh, uh, negatively and, and reject them. You're cursed by God. And so he was saying, no, no, that's not the case at all. These people have been accepted by God and we need to accept them as well. Secondly, he is saying that there are more than finances to judge success by. Uh, when we begin to appreciate people for their inward character, the outward becomes much less important. And James is, bas is basically saying, don't just dwell on the outward. Get your mind in gear. See where the person's character is at and, and judge by their actions and by their character. And, you know, whatever area of problems that we have, we need to examine how God would treat that person. For example, if we treat a repentant prostitute, you know, with kind of a hands-off attitude, we need to begin meditating upon the scriptures of Christ welcoming sinners, prostitutes, uh, into the church. In fact, last week I mentioned, what would you do, you know, if uh, one of these homosexuals that I'm witnessing to becomes soundly converted, comes into the church, becomes a mem member? And uh, I've been in churches where literally they have been shunned or people have even left because there was a, a former homosexual that has become a member. He's repented, okay? And what we need to do then is replace our old thinking with the thinking thinking God's thoughts after him. Memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, which says, uh, lists all of these, homosexuals, cataracts, all of those, and says, such were some of you, but now you are washed, now you are clean. You know, they're sanctified uh, by the Lord. And so we're replacing our thoughts with God's thoughts. Uh, and by the way, you ha this is a, all across the board in sanctification, meditation on the scripture is key. Your mind cannot operate in a vacuum. You try to throw out your old bad thinking, there's a vacuum. Sucks it right back in again. Unless you replace it with something that is the opposite, you're meditating on scriptures which are the opposite, the vacuum is going to be there. And so to get rid of the old, we have to bring in the new. Then next, look at how the world treats that person. Verses 6 through 7. But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Okay, he is saying that if riches is the criteria for acceptance, why is it that it was mostly rich people who had been persecuting them during the first century? He says, yes, save them, but don't try to curry their favor. And yet that is exactly what Christians have tried to do right up to the present era. Uh, for example, there are Christians who have been scientists and they've bought into evolution and all that kind of stuff. And they read in Genesis, they're kind of embarrassed by that. And they, they don't want the world to think that they're poor academic scholarship. And so they try to adjust Genesis 1 through 11. And we looked, you know, several, what was it, three or four months ago, we looked at many of the different theories that people have come up, to, uh, come up with trying to explain away Genesis 1 through 11. Now, what they are doing is they are not wanting the world to look at them as being weird. And you've got... Well, I shouldn't throw out any names, but you've got entire organizations that have actually really been nasty to six-day creationists, have really put down six-day creationists, have been prejudiced against us, and they're doing it because they don't want the world to be prejudiced against them. Has it helped? No. The world doesn't think any better of day-agers or framework hypothesizers or all of the other ones than they do of the six-day creationists. And that's basically what James is saying. I think this is one of the major hindrances of worship. We don't want the world to think we're weird. 
right? We don't want the world to think we're different than they are, and yet that's exactly what God wants. He wants us to be so sanctified to Him that we become a, what does Peter say? A peculiar people? We become a peculiar people. He wants there to be a stark difference between Christians and non-Christians. And so he says, okay, think about how the world treats that person and how the world treats you. Does it make sense what you're doing, trying to gain the world's favor? It doesn't make any sense at all. So again, he's trying to adjust their worldview. Third, ask yourself if you're acting like God or if you're acting like the world. And uh, this is verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. We are to govern our thinking by the scriptures. They are our only infallible rule of faith and practice. They give to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We don't need to go to the world to guide our thinking in these areas. And then lastly, actually there's um, uh, several, several more. There's no lastly here. Look at number two there. We dealt with this last week. The first two points under, under number two. We need to remind ourselves that prejudice is utterly inconsistent with our faith and it's utterly inconsistent with our love. Uh, in verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Okay? Don't hold prejudice and faith in the same hand. He says they are utterly inconsistent. When you consider how different you were, how weird you were to God, as it were. Uh, when you consider that you were at enmity with God, you were filthy, and yet God came down, He died for you, He brought you into friendship with Himself, and then you turn around and you treat other people in an entirely different way. You are giving a slap at the faith at, uh, that God has brought to us, at His grace. He says it's utterly inconsistent. Next, it's utterly inconsistent with agape love, which is self-giving love. We're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. Because I dealt with it last week, I won't deal with it a lot. But how do you tell if you've got a servant's heart? Uh, Mark Moss was a, a member at our old church before we went to Virginia. And one of the phrases he said is, you can tell if you've got a servant's heart by how you react when people treat you like a servant. And uh, if you get all bent out of shape, uh, you probably don't have a servant's heart yet. <laughs> and I thought that's a good test. It's a good test to look. Uh, point C under number two there, remember that none of us is perfect. I think it's an excellent reminder. Verses 10 through 11 says we're all sinners, we're all in the same boat. It says, uh, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Now, there are differences, different seriousness of sins. And yet he says, you know, in the ultimate analysis, when we sin we are guilty of breaking the whole law of God. And so when we shun certain people because they have a certain sin, but we're accepting of other sinners because, well, we think their sin is not so bad, he says, we're not really playing fair. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all saved by grace. And we're all growing into the image of Christ. Another thing to remember is that God disciplines us with the same standard that we judge by. Now, if you're not motivated by the carrot that he's dangling in front of you, he brings along the stick, okay? And so that's verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now this is in such flat-out contradiction to the theology of so many Christians, I think it bears commenting on it a little bit. There are many people who say, once you're a believer, once you've been justified, you will never be judged again. 
You won't be judged at the second coming of Christ. You won't be judged in life. There will, will be absolutely no judgment. But there are many scriptures which deny that. And I think James is quite, quite clear that Christians can continue to be judged by the law. And that does not deny that we've been brought into liberty. Not at all. It, it, it is the law, the very law that judges us, that defines liberty. And so when a train jumps off the railroad tracks and it get, gets mired in the dirt, it should not be, you know, blaming the tracks and saying, hey, it's your fault that I'm experiencing bondage. It should not say to the tracks, uh, you shouldn't be judging me. You know, when the tracks say, hey, if you stay on me, you're going to have liberty. And if you keep jumping off, you're going to have that. You deserve what you have. You keep jumping off the tracks. Okay, I don't think the train is in a place to say, that's wrong law or that's wrong railroad tracks to be judging me. The, the, the railroad tracks say, hey, look, if you stay on these tracks, you're going to have liberty. That's what I'm designed for, is to give you maximum joy and to give you maximum uh, liberty. But notice that the language gets even stronger. It's not just judgment, it's punishment. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, what James is saying is when we fail to have a love that covers over a multitude of sins or when we have a, uh, a racial prejudice or we have the, some of the different kinds of prejudice that we are, we are, we've been looking at last week, then God is not going to extend mercy to us. He's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. He's talking about his discipline in our lives as a parent. Um, let me just explain how this works. God says that if we are, in Hebrews 13, if we're without discipline, we are illegitimate children. Discipline is a sign of his love for us. But he doesn't discipline us for absolutely every sin that we commit or we would be toast. I mean, there's so many that he could deal with. What God does is he takes us along at different levels. He shows us in the scriptures. Here's some areas you need to change in, Phil Kaiser. And I change. And then he'll show me some new areas. And, and there's a gradual growth. It's only at the point of rebellion where we say, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to do it anyway, that God brings the discipline into our lives. And so it's a, a, a gradual thing uh, over time. And that's why Jeremiah says, it is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. When you realize the multitude of your sins, then you're going to begin to understand, wow, the multitude of his mercies that are new every morning. That's why I'm not wiped off the face of the map. And it's going to help you to be more merciful to other people. But the flip side of the coin is true as well. When you realize that God can step up his discipline in your life, when you are not being merciful to other people, wow, that can be a motivator as well. If you're not motivated by the carrot, you could be motivated by the stick. Okay, there's both positive and there is negative. And uh, by the way, James is not being legalistic here. He is just reflecting the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> and there's many passages along these lines, but I think this one is as good as any. Matthew chapter 18. And uh, we could start at verse 1, but let's just dive into the middle of it. Verse 21, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, don't even be keeping track. You're missing the point, Peter. 
this is you're to, 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 to forgive others in the same way I have forgiven you. You'd be in deep trouble if I only forgave you for a, a set limited number of times. And then he gives this parable of the two servants. The first servant owed the master millions and millions of dollars. He was just no way he was able to pay. And he cries out for mercy to the master and the master forgives him of his debt. And he's, he's grateful and then he goes out and he, he's grabbing a guy by the throat who earns, owes him a hundred denarii, which is about a hundred, a hundred days, um, wages, I think it is. And so it's a fair chunk of money. But he's, uh, throttling this guy, pay up, and this guy's begging for mercy, and he won't have mercy. He throws him into jail. Now, now look at verses 32 and following what the master does. Then his master, after he called him, said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. By the way, that serpent represents us. We've been forgiven a huge debt. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will also, also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Uh, he is not talking about unbelievers suffering in hell here. I don't think it has anything to do with hell. Uh, and he's not talking about unbelievers. He is talking about brothers who have a heavenly father. Uh, this was an answer to Peter's question as to what would happen to him if he didn't forgive his brother. And so if you are going through torture in your relationships, you're going through torture in your emotions and in many other areas, you might want to ask yourself, you know, is this something the Lord's beaten up on me for because I don't have a forgiving heart, because I'm being prejudiced, or because in some way I'm holding out on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to ask. Maybe there's a reason for my feeling, my feeling tortured. Uh, he said, uh, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You're going to be handed over to the tormentors which I take to be Satan. You know, Paul said, this person's handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment. When we reject and reject God's grace in our lives, eventually God says, okay, you don't like it here? I'll let you see what it's like to be under Satan's tyranny. And uh, Satan beats up on them and uh, drives them back to Christ. Well, James tells the believers in the church very similar things. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So that's the stick, not the carrot. So far we've looked at uh, changing our motives. We've looked at changing our thinking. Let's look last at dealing with our actions. And actually, before I, I, I look at the actions, I should point out those three go together. When you've got bad motives, it's going to affect your thinking. It's going to affect your actions. You know, maybe this person's done one bad thing out of a hundred, you know, good things. But you're so focused and bitter over that one bad thing, you're totally blinded to the good things that that person has done. Our motives affect our, our thinking, our thinking affects our actions, but the contrary is true as well. When we begin to transform our thinking, it affects our motives, it affects our actions. And likewise, when you begin to do the right thing, even though you don't feel like it, you feel like doing the exact opposite, you say, Lord, I'm doing this, and stepping out in obedience to your will, many times that very action of faith transforms our thinking, transforms our heart as well. So the heart affects the actions and vice versa. So 
James gives three surefire actions designed to weaken the prejudices that are within you. And the first one is seen in verse 8. We just need to go out and serve people faithfully in areas that other people tend to neglect. And the very act of ministering is an act that you will find beginning to transform you. And, uh, you know, frequently God doesn't even answer your prayers until you're actually out there obeying. You're actually doing something. He doesn't give you the grace, like I mentioned uh, three or four weeks ago, he doesn't give you the grace for, you know, dealing with, you know, can I be faithful in torture? He didn't give it until you need it. And so in the same way, he's not going to give you the grace to be able to conquer till you're out there in the battlefield, until you're actually doing something. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to get out there and step our feet into the Jordan River. That's when the Jordan is parted. When did God heal the man with the withered hand? You know, this man had been for years and years with a, a withered hand, and Christ commanded him, stretch forth your hand. He was not healed when he theoretically believed that Christ could do it, because he already theoretically believed that. When Christ commanded him, stretch forth your hand, he could have said, what do you mean stretch it forth? You've got to heal it first, Christ, then I'll stretch it forth. This has been a dead hand for a long time. It was only when he willed to do the impossible in obedience to God's word that God's grace transformed and, and healed his hand. Can you see that? God gives the grace in the very act of faith. We've got to step out. We've got to begin uh, to do the, the right thing. And so uh, if you look at uh, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 27... He's already anticipated that. He's going to later on be giving this interplay of faith and works in, um, in, in, in the next section that we'll look at next time. But look at chapter 1, verse 27, where he already anticipates this. Even though chapter 2 begins a new chapter, there's a connection with the previous one. Last verse. <clears throat> says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Okay, those are the kinds of ministries we tend to avoid. Why? Well, chapter 2, verse 1, the next verse tells us one of the reasons why is because many times we're prejudiced. We don't like, it's messy, it's smelly, you know, working with the homeless and working with, in these kinds of areas. We don't like to do that. And so to break our prejudice, we need to deliberately put ourselves into a position where we are ministering, where our heart doesn't want to minister and saying, Lord, take over, minister through me. By faith, I am stepping out. I'm talking to these people I don't want to talk to. And I am ministering to them. I'm visiting them. Uh, and it's in the act of doing it, God begins to transform. He doesn't do it in a theoretical void, not at all. Uh, look to at chapter 2, 14 through 26. That whole section, he goes into a discussion of faith producing good works. For example, 15 through 17. Uh, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if we're going to deal with the heart problem of prejudice, we've got to begin scheduling into our schedule, getting out there and doing things with those that we are prejudiced against. And I, I should have gotten the, the story, but I just jotted down earlier. I thought a good example was Corey Ten Boom. She had a, a particular guard that she had a hatred and a bitterness for. And at the end of one of the conferences she put on, she saw this guard coming down the aisle and she wanted to disappear and avoid him, but she couldn't. 
And he's coming up and she's fumbling with her purse and wondering what in the world she's going to do. And he says to her, uh, Fräulein, it is so good to know that our sins are forgiven. And uh, I've been forgiven by God, but would you forgive me? And he held out her hand and she couldn't. She says her hand just stuck to her side. She could not forgive him because she had so much bitterness inside of her. And the spirit prompted her, you need to do it. And so she says, Lord, you got to help me because I can't forgive him. One little word, I forgive you for everything he's done to me. And she stuck out her hand and said, Lord, help me. And she says, yes, I forgive you. And she says, she's never, she, it was just like an electric current going through her whole arm. She has never felt such love for any individual as she felt at that point. And she says, God didn't always do that. But to me, it was an illustration. It's when you're actually stepping out and saying, Lord, I don't feel like it. You're stepping out that God takes over and he begins to minister his grace through you. And so that, that's the point of this, this whole first section. We've got to begin killing that pride and killing that prejudice by going out and ministering. Okay, the second action that, boy, it's terribly hurtful to prejudice, and we're wanting to crucify prejudice, is to confess your sins to one another. Now, he's going to harp on that in chapter 5. He says, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. But it's hinted at right here already, verses 9 through 13, it's very clear. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. And if you never let other people know that you have sins that you struggled with and that you're pr asking for prayer on or that you confess, if you never confess those sins, you are implying to the whole world that James is wrong, that you're not a sinner. That's what you're implying. And so when you confess your sins, what you're doing is you're destroying the pride. Oh, that is hard to confess your sins to one another. You're destroying the pride. You're destroying the prejudice within. The third step that he takes is to conquer with mercy. Or as Paul words it, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, this person's doing nothing but evil to you. You're declaring war on him. You're overcoming by doing all kinds of nice deeds and, and trying to conquer with love. Or as James words it here, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, there are plenty of reasons that we can come up with as to as to why we have a right to be prejudiced against this individual. I mean, some people are just plain tough to love, aren't they? Just plain tough. They're buzzards, you know, and you, you just don't want to be around them. And yet, uh, we have to have a mercy that triumphs uh, over that kind of, that kind of uh, evil. Uh, they deserve to be kicked out, and yet we pray, Lord, help the mercy that I showed to this person. He doesn't deserve it. In fact, that's the very nature of mercy, right? You're doing good things to people who don't deserve it. Help this mercy to conquer that individual. Or maybe there's somebody that you've been prejudiced against because they're just weird. They dress differently. They eat differently, like Phil Kaiser, you know, just really weird. And so what you're doing is you're trying to overcome this person and transform them from being a social nerd into being, you know, a fellow servant, you know, in the kingdom of God. You know, when you think about it, we're all social nerds compared to God, aren't we? And so uh, you're, you're, you're causing mercy to triumph over judgment. Uh, sure, that neighbor is an idolatrous you know, Roman Catholic, but mercy and love can conquer. Bitterness is not going to help. You know, Getting frustrated with them, prejudice isn't going to help. It's just going to exacerbate the problem. It's going to make it far worse. It's going to escalate the tensions. And so I want to end simply by reading the last verses of Romans chapter 12, 
And in fact, I'd encourage you to turn to this. If you have struggles in this area or struggles in bitterness, this is a passage you need to memorize and you need to implement. It gives all kinds of ways in which we can cause mercy to triumph over judgment, where we can conquer through uh, deeds of love. And so, uh, Romans 12, verses 9 through to the end. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. By the way, people who think this is just New Testament, it's not the Old, he's quoting that from the Old Testament uh, of feeding your enemy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's what James 2 is talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of evil out there, but we are called to overcome evil with good. Christ tells us to die to self, to take up the cloak of love, and to accept the calling of a servant. And there really is no room for prejudice when we have those three. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would help us to live it out. It's easy to read it. It's easy to understand it. It's much harder, Father, to implement it in our lives. Forgive us for those times that we have shown prejudice, and help us, Father, to live out the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reflect the same kind of forgiveness that you gave to us. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we do so, you would give us great joy. Help us not to apply your word in a legalistic way apart from your word. Help us not to become Pharisees, but help us to taste so deeply of your grace that the overflow of the supernatural grace, such as Corey Ten Boom and that one example experience, would be the daily reality that we experience. Help us, Father, to overcome evil with good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.